Hello, and welcome to The Money Movement. I'm very excited. We're here recording a Money Movement episode at Consensus 22 in Austin, Texas. I think 17,000 people, probably the largest event uh, post-pandemic. I don't know if I can say that happening. And I'm thrilled to have Michael Sunshine, CEO of Grayscale, a crypto OG, and someone who I've had the pleasure of getting to know for, I don't know, eight years or whatever. About eight years. Something like that. It's awesome to have you on the show and be doing it here in DCG land. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. So there's obviously like so much to talk about. Maybe to start with, you know, kind of we can go look back as well, but just sort of where we are today, which is, you know, very specifically, you guys have been at the forefront of, you know, asset management in digital assets. You've been at the forefront of making Bitcoin an accessible investment product through traditional investment means. And you're, you know, it seems like you're right on the cusp of potentially getting the coveted Bitcoin ETF product, which you, in my view, so greatly deserve. Thank you. And uh, (laughs) I'm a very happy investor in the GBTC product and, and in the ETH product as well. I have elected to be an aggressive user of those in my IRAs and other formats. Fantastic. Well. So yeah. It's a little testimonial. When I go long, I'm like finding every avenue I can. So yeah. uh, it's a great product. I would love to see see you guys, you know, I hate to use the word prevail in a sense, but it kind of feels like that. And I think that's the right and, word. And I guess, you know, indicatively on that, right, you've just hired a former uh, solicitor general to, uh, you know, help you guys. So I'm sure there's areas that you may or may not want to talk about, but you guys have been really upfront about, you know, the legal basis really for having this product. Maybe just talk a little bit about the thinking there and and where you're at and um, it will go from there. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is long overdue. So I'm glad we're finally having this conversation and it's great to be here. You know, Jeremy, this has been eight years in the making, right? When I think about Grayscale's earliest days, We were early to identify that digital currency was going to become a bona fide asset class and investors would want access to it. And most people don't really realize that when we launched Grayscale Bitcoin Trust all the way back in 2013, we actually chose a legal structure that's identical to what you see for a lot of commodity ETFs today, uh, GLD probably being the most well-known to them. So it's a Delaware grantor trust. So it's not like somewhere along these last eight years, we suddenly decided that an ETF would be optimal. This was always the plan at Grayscale. And to your point and on your very kind introduction, you know, it's really been our core focus, making investing in this asset class accessible, low barriers to entry, giving people the ability to do so through traditional means to buy securities that have audit financial statements, risk disclosures, offering memorandums, tax reporting, the things that investors are usually used to seeing. I think what's been so fascinating is how not only the asset class has evolved, the fact that Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has become the largest Bitcoin vehicle in the world. It holds about three and a half percent of all Bitcoin in circulation, but that it's, you know, made its way into almost a million investor accounts in the U.S., all 50 states, right? So this has really become the vehicle of choice for so many investors looking to access Bitcoin in a brokerage account, retirement account, 401k, et cetera. But if you fast forward to where we are today in 2022, you know, we're now down to the last couple of weeks before the SEC ultimately has to 
weigh a decision to approve or deny taking GBTC and converting it into a spot ETF. And the playing field that we find ourselves in is an uneven one, right? The SEC had historically said no Bitcoin ETFs. And they were looking at that through the lens of both Bitcoin futures-based ETFs, as well as Bitcoin spot-based ETFs, which is what GBTC is, since it just holds Bitcoin itself, as opposed to holding Bitcoin futures. And if we look at the last couple of months, that thinking has really evolved. You now have, I think it's three, maybe even four Bitcoin futures products on the market. And I think you and I and everybody else in this industry, as well as the investment management industry as a whole, would say, that's a huge milestone, right? Bitcoin only came along, you know, a little over a decade ago, and we now have a healthy two-sided market, derivatives, lending and borrowing, all this infrastructure. So to have Bitcoin futures ETFs, it's fantastic. But we shouldn't be forcing investors into that because it's the only thing that exists, right? And we know that a Bitcoin futures ETF and a Bitcoin spot ETF don't actually provide the exact same kind of exposure and maybe aren't appropriate for the same types of investors. As that thinking has evolved, you've now seen the SEC approve Bitcoin futures ETFs under both the 40 Act, Mm -hmm. which governs primarily those kinds of products that hold Bitcoin futures, as well as now under the 33 Act. And so the you know, the evolution of that thinking, the next natural step in that is to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. And our attorneys at Davis Polk, who we've worked with for a very long time, have outlined some really strong arguments as to why and potentially that, you know, the SEC here is possibly violating the Administrative Procedure Act, right? Which for those of you less familiar with it, you know, you and I probably moonlight as securities attorneys these days, (laughs) essentially governs the way regulators regulate. And so when they're looking at two issues that are alike and they're looking at them disparately, that's really when an APA or Administrative Procedure Act violation comes into play. So hiring, we just announced recently that that we hired Don Verrilli. Don is not just a great guy and a fantastic attorney, but he's the former Solicitor General of the United States under the Obama administration. And a lot of folks are asking, well, why are you hiring this, you know, very powerful attorney, this litigator? Well, ultimately, we've said, you know, we may have to ultimately enter into a lawsuit with the SEC if they continue to have this, you know, posturing where they're looking at these two issues disparately. But we're really down now to the last couple of weeks and we're, you know, keeping all options on the table. There are so many issues in regulatory treatment. You know, what are digital assets? Uh, you know, these investment structures. And look, there's legitimate investor protection questions and things like that. I think there is also a little bit of concern of, you know, letting the fox in the hen house or whatever metaphor you want to sure. use. But like the bottom line is, uh, you know, digital commodities are a new major invention. They didn't exist before. Like actual digital commodities didn't exist. It's a breakthrough. Genie's out of the bottle. We now have digital commodities. We have digital commodities that are decentralized. We have digital commodities that have varying degrees of centralization, but the ability to use a digital commodity in some way to power something and use something or incentivize something, it's, it's an incredible human invention. It is. People I, should have safe access to it. <laughs> people should have safe access to it. And, you know, I think the, the you know, moving topics a little bit, and I'd yeah. just be, really be interested to hear your take because you guys, you guys evaluate a lot of different digital assets as assets that people might want to invest in or own. And, you know, similarly, like, you know, you could choose to purchase copper and manufacture something with it, or you could Mm -hmm. say, I believe copper is going to have more utility this year or less utility this year or whatever the demand drivers are. And you can choose to 
invest in the price of copper and and these blockchain networks, you know, these layer one blockchains and protocols, and it's this new category of these digital commodity assets, and it's irreversible, right? This this is here, and and so a lot of people are struggling with, you know, how does one classify and define these? There's a lot of legislative initiatives on that, but as Grayscale looks at this burgeoning ecosystem and thinks about that, how are you kind of adjudicating both what you're interested in making available in a safe way for investors, but also kind of adjudicating, you know, what you feel really are these kind of lasting digital commodity uh, products? Sure. And listen, I think, Jeremy, burgeoning is the exact correct adjective to use, right? We feel that we're maybe just rounding the bottom of the first inning as to not only the use cases, but the really whole development of this asset class and investor access to it and, and the utility around it. But to your point, at Grayscale, we now offer 17 different digital currency vehicles. Mm-hmm. Most of them are single asset products, right? So it's a long-only passive fund for Bitcoin, a long-only passive fund for Ethereum, so on and so forth. But we've also begun to develop a suite of diversified funds where investors can gain exposure to, for instance, large cap digital assets or a basket of DeFi assets or a basket of smart contract protocol assets. And so the way that we really think about our product roadmap is actually quite straightforward. So there's two things that I think we really hold in in really high regard. So number one, we're really transparent with the market about how we evaluate tokens. So there is persistently on our website a list of not only assets that underpin the Grayscale product family, but also a list of all the assets under consideration Mm -hmm. to potentially make their way into the Grayscale product family. And as we evaluate assets, it's everything you could possibly imagine about them. We're looking at where they came from, who the teams are behind them. Are they centralized or decentralized? Are they solving real world problems or are they in fact solutions in search of problems? Where does price discovery happen? Are they potentially securities and or are they digital commodities? Are they pre-mined? Are they proof of work? Are they proof of stake? What are the custodial solutions available? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what we've seen from investors is that today, kind of midway through 2022, their perspective for the most part is having now have that kind of core Bitcoin and or core Ethereum positions. And while diversification has been something that's gained momentum amongst investors in terms of building out a diversified portfolio of crypto assets, there's now suddenly, which is super encouraging to our team, an appreciation of sub-themes or subcategories of crypto assets. Yeah. So when we look at the equities market, we look at financials, right. we look at healthcare, we All look at sectors, and so right? On, yeah. And now investors are appreciating in the crypto space that there's smart contracts, there's DeFi, there's privacy, sure. you know, right. and the list goes on and on. And so as the asset class is developing, investors are keen to make that kind of singular investment but then get broad-based exposure to a variety of those assets. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm interested as someone who has been, you know, at this as long as you have. I've had a few guests over the past several months who are similarly OG, as it were. And I think there's waves of of getting involved in in this space, right? Whether it's as an investor or as a market participant or as just frankly an observer, right? Just how much attention people pay to it. And, we have these successive waves. waves. Oftentimes, those waves are, are tied to the price in the market, but it's also generally tied to just the volume of, 
of activity and projects and other things. But like coming kind of like back to the basics, like the, the very, very basics, I'd love to hear you talk about your kind of global macro thesis, just as you see it, maybe this isn't a grayscale point of view, but your point of view, mm -hmm. global macro thesis for Bitcoin. And is it, has it evolved? Has it changed? How has it responded to the current, we're seeing macro response in all risk assets and markets and commodities and other things. And so maybe just first, you know, fundamental macro thesis, which I know I just want to hear it from you. Yeah, sure. And then, then I want to kind of tie it back to, we really now see like this real interplay between macro and Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? At a global level, which is remarkable. Like if you had mm -hmm. said that to people five, six years ago, I, I thought it would always be the case. But like, sure. if you'd said that, like, ah, you know, right. whatever, but like, it's right there, you know, you've got commodities markets, equities markets, Bitcoin. Like everywhere, every market watch, every everyone's looking, and there's an and there's an interplay. Sure, and I want to explore that a bit. Yeah, I think for me, going all the way back to January of 2014, when I got into the crypto space, what kind of sparked that light bulb moment for me was really the idea of Bitcoin being the springboard to financial inclusion. Mm -hmm. I have never wavered over the last eight years in my kind of long-term goal of seeing Bitcoin be able to do that. And I think both folks like yourself, you know, me, others in the industry, you know, you can't really come to appreciate Bitcoin or a lot of the development work that's going on in and around the space without also kind of becoming a kind of money historian, yeah. if you will, right? And looking at over time, just how much money has changed that ultimately society is who dictates, you know, what money is. And the world we live in today, Bitcoin is not necessarily acting in that capacity just yet, right? Certainly in the U.S. and a lot of other developed yeah. nations, it's still being used as a speculative asset, as a digital gold or digital store yeah. of value. I remember, just sorry yeah, to interrupt, yeah, go like, for it. I, I remember back when there was the, the block size you know, debate wars. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there was a lot of passionate discussion about what's Bitcoin for right now. And, and actually, you know, the camp that won, which which was sort of the keep the block size small mm -hmm. kind of camp, was was really the digital gold camp, and and really I remember some of the smartest minds saying, you know, there's a period of maybe it's thirty years, maybe it's fifty years. There's just a there's going to be this long period where there's this monetization that happens where the the kind of monetary base in Bitcoin you know gets to really significant scale and where effectively price stability actually there's more stability inherently in in it and it's only then some at that point in the future where it really okay. could become a unit of account yep right really because it it's clearly a medium of exchange meaning like it's got these digital properties it's phenomenal Absolutely. right but like as a unit of, as a stable unit of account where people are going to denominate contracts and, and other yeah. things and i think for for a lot of people like that's like hard to get your head wrapped around mm -hmm. it's like well i'm this thing has this. Well, you got to be patient. You got to stomach the volatility, yeah. right? You have to continue to see the regulatory environment continue to firm up around yeah. the asset itself. Yeah. You know, even here at Consensus, 
there's, you know, really starting to be a conversation around starting to denominate things in Satoshis, right? Which is not necessarily part of the conversation that's usually been had. Right. But I think that I still have such a long-term optimistic outlook on Bitcoin's ability to do this because as you kind of shrug off that developed world kind of lens that we all walk around with and you really do look all around the globe and you see the lack of infrastructure around financial assets, the ability to store value, transfer it to the next generation, finance a business, finance an education, you know, the ability to have a non-sovereign asset when wherever it is that you live is hyperinflating 10, 20% overnight, you know, that's really scary. And I really believe that, you know, this is the, you know, the democratization of money. It's it's super, super powerful. It's pretty interesting. Like, here I am, Mr. Dollar, digital currency purveyor, like, you know, dollars everywhere. Yeah. Uh, And I think people sometimes are like puzzled when I sort of- They think it's at odds with one another? They think it's at odds. I'm like, no, 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 not at all. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's sort of like kind of the world of currency today and how people are paying for things and denominating contracts and all of these things. And sure. like, that's got a lot of legs. <laughs> it's going to have a lot of legs for a long time. <laughs> and likewise, you know, there is this sort of ongoing growth in digital commodity money. And, and in fact, a digital currency dollar and digital commodity money have a, this really strong interplay with each other. And, and so I think it's an interesting thing. And so I have a very long-term view, like you share sure. that view. And, and I think one of the really interesting questions that is worth thinking about. And it's actually, you know, in the founding of Circle nine years ago, when we were kind of writing our strategy white papers and all this sort of stuff was sort of, you know, over the long run, could you imagine units of account that are digital currencies that are backed by Bitcoin as a model? And that's actually what the dollar and a lot of fiat currencies sure. have, have been for a very, very long time. And, and so, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think that's entirely right. And I think, honestly, one of the ways that we can get there is getting globally people to stop thinking about the health of this ecosystem and the traction that it's gaining mm-hmm. to solely be a reflection of its price. Totally. Right. Yeah. And that's tough, right? Because today, so much of the use case is around, you know, a diversifying asset in people's portfolios and, and yeah. they're speculating on it. But Bitcoin if it does nothing else other than fulfill this digital gold part, it could still be wildly successful. And I'd argue it's already been wildly successful. Absolutely. But there is certainly use cases coming for all kinds of industries and all kinds of assets where the rails on which all kinds of things are moving, very often folks may not even know Bitcoin is the rail on which things are moving in the background. And you're going to see the denominations of all kinds of assets and probably the proliferation of an entire industry around microfinancing, microtransactions, things today that our infrastructure just doesn't allow for. Yeah, I mean, we're, de- we're definitely seeing that with USDC, just this proliferation of financial application use cases that are just hard to do. You can't do them in the existing banking system. Sure. And um, so actually maybe just a, a little bit of a segue into, you know, again, coming back to this idea of digital commodities, there's more and more types of digital commodities. And I think in real life, <laughs> or whatever, in the real world, or we're in the real world, but like in the traditional world of commodities, right? It's like not controversial that you'd have a commodity like gold, you'd have a, you know, commodity like wheat, infinite number of commodities in some sense. Sure. Right? It's just physical things, other things, yes. right? And commodities that have utility to control something like oil is probably the best example of a commodity that has incredible utility. Mm-hmm. You build, you know, there's these machines that get built 
and you got to put this stuff in the machines and then they they burn and do shit you know <laughs> like then and, and like then like buildings got built and all this Indeed. cars got built and all yeah. this sort of stuff one of the analogies i like to use is that these blockchains are you know kind of like a new set of machine technologies and it's a new set of computing machines and these are computing machines that can perform computing tasks that allow for you know disintermediation allow for um, you know various types of complex interactions where incontrovertible data or transactions or business logic can execute safely. And that's a really powerful invention, these new machines, these Indeed. new kind of trust computing machines. And they are fueled by digital commodities. Right. And so but let a- me push you on that, though, because this is the question I always get, which is, will there just be one, right? Or or can there be a landscape of several digital commodities yeah. that coexist Absolutely. with different use cases, different prices, different addressable markets? And when are we going to consolidate from the, I don't know, now nearly probably 20,000 yeah, right. know, of these assets to something that's far more digestible? Yeah, I mean, as a internet software platform practitioner of almost 30 years, I've sort of watched platform wars over many, many generations of technology. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of good analogies that one can use or can, can look at. And one that I like to use, which is a relatively recent and many people can relate to is, is um, you know, uh, smartphone operating systems. We all remember the compact iPack, or at least I do, the Palm Pilot, the Nokia. Don't show your age, you know, right? Nokia, Symbian phones, you know, Windows phone, NTT Docomo phones, like all of these carriers, mobile handset manufacturers with all their own. Like, yep. And it was like- And there was a and, lot of momentum around each of them. Every one of those yep. was like, we are solving, like we're mobile. And, yeah. like, and they all were getting developer ecosystems and who's going to build the apps. And there was sort of the kind of open models, like what was called WAP, uh, which was just the way you built a mobile web app. Yep. And like, but it was an intense platform work and with big companies too, mm-hmm. right? Like these were big companies yeah. that were like trying to win these. And, you know, like none of it was very good. It was, uh, I mean, in some ways it was a, uh, no one had yet gotten to the the hardware device that brought it to life in the right way, or they hadn't figured out the user experience, or there wasn't three G, and so it's just you really just couldn't do much with that. Yeah. There were just so many so many things. I that, think that, that analogy tracks that were there, and and you know eventually like technological capabilities, screens, the compute that you could fit on the size, you know the user interface paradigms, right? Three G coming online, like a number of things came together. And then someone solved it. And it was none of the prior 17. Yep. None of them. They all died, basically. <laughs> they, all, they all died. Yeah. But then the paradigm was established and you had Android emerge as a very viable alternative paradigm. And you've seen some other, you know, kind of mobile and device-centric operating systems emerge. I think of blockchain, layer one blockchains mm-hmm. in a very similar way. That right now there's, you know, whatever, 17. I'm just using the analogy. There's more than that, obviously. There's a lot yeah. of people chasing this. And there are some first movers that have really good early traction. I, I mean, I remember how many developers were building for Symbian. Because mm-hmm. like Nokia had all this distribution. It was like Symbian, Symbian, Symbian. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, really, really passionate about that. But like, it looked like it could be the winner. Sure. But, but when we look at timeframes associated yeah. with that analogy, right? My frustration is that 
the momentum and the progress that we're making as an industry is unmatched. Yeah. Compared to this, you know, sure. looking at those, yeah, I mean, the, the, but there's somehow all this impatience that yeah. is not happening fast enough around right. the crypto space. Yeah, so so I have a long term view as well, and my take is like, yeah, this is actually moving along at a pretty nice steady clip. Actually, it's, I, it's, I say like a week in crypto is like a month or a couple months in the real world. Yeah, I mean, so. if you if you zoom in, you're like, holy shit, the velocity of things is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. And this ties into a lot of other other themes around kind of technological obsolescence. And you know, it's one of the reasons why USDC, you know, we have a multi-chain strategy because there's so much innovation happening and the paradigms are rolling over. We have third generation blockchain technologies now, and there's people who are designing fourth generation blockchain technologies right. that can do a million transactions per second and that have like total, like using ZK, having like very deep levels of of privacy and confidentiality, which is if you're going to have mass society adopting this, really important. And that's like R&D right now. But right. like these are the kinds of things totally. that are getting laid out. The broadband infrastructure is getting laid down for people to do it. So, And I think generally skeptics will, will sort of look at the here and the now and go, oh, you can only do 15 transactions sure. per second. Yeah, but I think we bear a responsibility then as an industry to dumb this down, right? To make yeah. it as user-friendly as possible, right? Yeah. And getting these digital commodities into the hands of the next million, the next hundred million, the next 500 million, the next billion people, yeah. we have to dumb this down and, yeah. and have to bring it behind the scenes and make these interfaces. Absolutely. As- I'd be interested to get your reaction to this. I have this, I've been actually saying this for like a long time, but it's for, it feels very real now, which is there's sort of the speculative value phase and then there's the utility value phase. Mm-hmm. And We've begun to achieve some of the utility value phase. Mm-hmm. Like we, I think this most recent uh, cycle over the past couple of years has has actually introduced some pretty significant utility value. The utility of stablecoins is one example of that. The utility of DeFi, the utility of, of NFTs. Like these are there's like really interesting utility, and certainly the utility of of a non sovereign store value is extremely sure. extraordinary utility for a large number of people in the world. So we're starting to get in the utility value phase, but like it's in in some ways, if we're in another kind of crypto winter and people are going to build and people are going to do this, it's it feels like you know kind of the next phase of this is is like very large scale utility value. I I would agree with that. And and the user experience problem is a really big piece of that. And I think about that a lot from the perspective of coming back to your origin interest of financial inclusion and how do we make a more efficient, more inclusive, more fair, more simple, more um, equitable financial more, more system. Equitable financial system yeah. Right. There's the infrastructure layer, there's the unit economic layer, there's the access layer, and then there's the UX layer, right? And, sure. and solving for that. But you know, it's it's encouraging to see the, the amount of, of work that's happening there. But I'd be interested too, just as it ties back to grayscale specifically, and as you guys think about how do you help people navigate their way here. Is that kind of, you know, kind of helping people into the utility value phase and figuring out what to be aligned with, you know, a big part of that? I certainly hope so. I mean, you know, today being the largest asset manager for crypto globally, a lot of people are having their very first experiences with crypto anything via Grayscale. Mm -hmm. And whether that's buying one share of GBTC in their brokerage account or it's, you know, gaining exposure to a basket of DeFi assets, we're really trying to make it as familiar and easy as possible for folks. I'm going to say that it is too soon to say whether or not we have now entered a new crypto winter. Um, just seeing I agree. That, I'm not sure about that either. I'm not sure about it yet. And quite frankly, I think that as we kind of 
move through this next phase. And we do see, you know, kind of all the wonderful things you guys are doing at Circle, the continued expansion of the Grayscale product family, all the other, you know, industry participants that are continuing to build. I think one of our our biggest responsibilities is really around regulation. Mm-hmm. You know, today I see no shortage, no 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 slowing down of momentum of investors of every shape and size getting into this asset class. And as a regulator, they do have a tough job because half the things you just rattled off in in your last commentary were things that weren't happening in crypto, yeah. you know, 12 months ago, yeah. right? And so and so as a regulator, it's tough to keep pace with that. But I know you guys are spending a lot of time in D.C. We're spending a lot of time in D.C. as well. And we have to move this entire industry forward through new rules and new regulations. Otherwise, everyone is merely just trying to do their best, trying to deliver the best products and services they can, but just trying not to repeat the same mistakes that other companies have made that have led to enforcement actions. Right. And so we need to see regulation beyond enforcement. We definitely need to see that. And frankly, we need, I think, a, a fairly wide berth, I don't know if it's the right phrase, in terms of, of ensuring that the pace of technological change and improvement can continue. Right. Because And the regs won't slow it down. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, I, I think this is just one of those things where this is a choice for society. This isn't a choice for some regulator, right? Society gets to make these choices. Policymakers and regulators are vehicles for society. Mm-hmm. And society made a choice in the 90s that they wanted to allow really broad, open free market competition in the development of software technology and the, and the internet. Mm-hmm. And they kept a fairly open model, a very, very open model. And they didn't decide that a website is the equivalent of a radio tower and regulate right. it through the FCC or whatever the examples you sure. want to use are. And there were inherent risks and people talked about, well, if you have something where anyone can publish information, then, you know, criminals will run free and, you know, all these horrible things will happen. Right. And, and guess what? They do. They do, horrible things do happen. They happen in a lot of different worlds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think as an example, right, terrorists are organizing right now on WhatsApp and they're organizing right now on Telegram and they're publishing recruiting videos on YouTube. And no one in society is saying, take away YouTube, take away Telegram, take away this. They've decided that we have to have free society and we want to allow for this innovation. And we have to find ways to address these risks. And because so much of crypto is not just about financial services or financial technology, it covers so many things. It's like, we have to keep that that openness. We do. And I think, you know, there's a race right now. And the race is between innovators, developers, builders, technologists, and users Mm -hmm. and adopters who are driving and catalyzing uh, and capital that's coming in. They're driving and catalyzing this. And there's a race to get it to achieve planetary scale. Mm -hmm. And if you achieve that planetary scale and you connect the world together through this infrastructure, in some ways, regulation will in, have to adapt to right. the new world that's been created. And that's happened with the internet as well mm-hmm. in different ways. And I think it's just the internet movie playing on the next uh, serial. Right. Or and, but, and if people aren't paying close enough attention to this, what is transpiring in D.C., what you're seeing in the U.K., what you're seeing in Germany, yeah. what you're seeing in China, 
all around the world, there is a global competition yes. amongst nations, amongst state actors. Which is a huge change in the last 12 months, 18 yeah, months. Yeah, absolutely. Mean, I, I feel it every time I go into one of these countries. Uh, it's like there's a real change. And whether you want to look at the White House executive order from earlier this year that I think was a really big wake-up call. I think it was... Yeah. I think it slammed the door shut on anyone continuing to call crypto the wild, wild west in the United States because the highest office in the United States said to all of the federal regulators, it's time to get focused. It's time to figure out what we're going to do here. It's time to foster innovation. It's time to make sure that we keep these technological advancements in the U.S. and we don't lose out on this to other countries. And how fast this is happening is really encouraging to us. I mean, even just this week, yeah. you now have a bipartisan drafted bill from two senators really looking to begin to develop that framework yeah. for crypto regulation. We're seeing the, in the same US. thing, bipartisan bills around stablecoins. Absolutely. Uh, which, is, which is tremendous. And, and, you know, these are not things that were happening even just a few months ago. And I think as we, you know, get up to the midterm elections and you see how much, you know, these types of issues are part of a lot of politicians' platforms, it's continuing to gain momentum. And we're excited about it. We really, really are. So is it the Digital Currency Act of 2023 or... Uh, <laughs> You know, what is there? Is there going to be uh, an omnibus? Uh, like we're going to kind of just like the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which I remember well. I'm dating myself, which was like <laughs> the BFD of like making the open internet happen. Sure. Right. Tough to put a time frame on it, but I think you and I would both agree that we want more regulation, but we want it to, to your point, have a really open architecture. We want companies to have hopefully a regulatory sandbox, you know, within which they can build and, and test and, you know, develop their products and services. And that regulation will continue to try to keep pace with how things are transpiring and not squander it. So whether that happens in six months or 12 months, I'm not sure. But I do know that we and others are very engaged on these issues and, and the Hill is as well. It's incredible. So since I think our first early chats in the early days to here, it's pretty amazing. It is. Um, and, uh, you know, congrats on all the success and really, really excited. And thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me.